I did not realize that when I moved into my neighborhood last year, I would have the most insane trick-or-treating neighborhood I've ever seen. I got a neighbor a couple blocks over who had, they should be on here. There you go. I had a neighbor a couple blocks over who, uh, And it says, pull string for candy. And he hooked up his shot back on the blower to send candy down to kids. And so suddenly on this week, uh, Home Depot is having a shortage of PVC. Because everybody's dropping PVC lines and Pringle cans, you name it. They're passing them out to kids that way. So good time. So uh, today, you guys can see in your uh, bulletin what we're going to be talking about today. And it's called Rejected, Died, Raised, the only way to live for Jesus in each moment. We have an election in 48 hours. That's all I got to say. And uh, I just heard in that moan, I heard hallelujah, I heard I actually felt some of your blood pressures go up. I felt it. I just said election 48 hours, and like, I just, I felt that. Why do you think that is? Why don't you just ponder for a moment. Why do you think that is? Why are so many Christians in turmoil or stressed or just feeling a little shortness of breath as we think about an election in 48 hours? Just ponder that. Over these last few months... Have you experienced maybe some anxiety over these issues? Have you found that maybe perhaps you're not representing Christ the way you want to at work, on social media, with your family? It's interesting. I have watched in our church family, I don't know that I've ever seen so many people concerned with either preserving their life or their way of life. I don't know if I've ever seen it their personal life, or their way of life. And I'm noticing a lot of people turning into kind of the self-preservation mode. And they're, again, it's weird. Like, I'm watching it. It's a little bit like, (gasps) me, me. And we're turning in. And I don't know that in, by the way, I'll be 40 next week. Yeah. I don't know in my soon-to-be 40 years if I've ever seen the church this concerned about the eternal life of those who don't know Christ as their Savior. I don't know if I've ever seen it before. And so it's got me thinking that how am I as a Christian to respond to all that's going on in the world? And then how am I as a Christian to respond to other Christians who do and say things that hurt me or offend me? That's what it's got me thinking. And as we look at the text today, we're going to be reading out of Luke chapter 9. We will see that Jesus addresses his disciples. He's talking to his disciples. And he's going to tell them what is coming down the road for himself concerning his death. And he's kind of giving them a sneak peek to what's what's going to happen. But he also lays out the prescription of the normal Christian life, the normal Christ follower's life. 
and what following him would look like because he knew that the default mode of every follower of him when life gets hard would be self-preservation. He knew it. We know what the disciples faced just in the days after he ascended into heaven. And since then, every Christ follower has been tempted to turn into self-preservation when things get hard. So, things haven't changed very much, have they? Think about that. It's incredibly common, even in our church, but in the broader church, that it goes like this. I trust in Christ as my Savior, get my ticket to end heaven, and I'm just looking for my best life now. I'm just looking to kind of finagle his commands, attempting to kind of keep life rolling, keep my head above water, and just kind of get through this month. But I believe... And I say this because this is what God's doing in me. I believe God is using a COVID season and an election season to help us understand what we're going to be looking at today. Now, we're going to look at the verses before, but I believe this is what God is actually helping us understand. In Luke chapter 9, verse 24, Jesus said, Whoever wants to save their life will lose it. Whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for you to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit your very self? And friends, there is a way to live for Jesus moment by moment that will free us from the yo-yo of all the circumstances of life. And I have to say, if a Trump or a Biden victory on Tuesday can send you into the clouds with excitement or into your bed with depression, I'm afraid you're not understanding yet what we're going to be discovering, what Jesus said to us in this text. So I want to encourage you that because he calls us at each moment to die to sin, die to self, and find that our new life is truly in him. Again, You're going to hear me say this, but through death, we discover living for Christ moment by moment and the joy that comes from that. So we're going to be looking at Luke chapter 9, and we're going to start in verse 18. And let me ask the Lord just to teach us today, and then we'll march on down to this text. Lord, thank you so much for uh, the power of your word and how it changes us. It changes the way we think. I acknowledge how quickly we, we get off of following you. And, um... I acknowledge the road to our salvation was so painful for you, but we're thankful for it. And we pray that you would help us understand what it means to follow in your footsteps, that you might receive the glory, and we might fulfill our purpose while here on earth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's read it, chapter 9, verse 18. It says this, Once when Jesus was praying in private and his disciples were with him, he asked them, what do the crowds say? Who does, could the crowds say that I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others that one of the prophets of long ago has come back to life. But what about you? He asked. Who do you say that I am? 
Peter answered, God's Messiah. Jesus strictly warned them not to tell this to anyone. And he said, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Then he said to them all, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross daily, and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for you to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit your very self? So we see in the text, in verses 18 to 20, Jesus asks a very personal question. He first starts off with the crowd. Who do the crowds say that I am? And it's pretty obvious, you see here, right, that John the Baptist, Elijah, or maybe one of the prophets that has risen from the dead. And he asks this question because as you believe, so you behave. Your behavior doesn't just come out of nowhere. As you believe, so you behave. And so if behavior has not been exactly what you would like in the last six to eight months, go back to the root of what you believe. He then turns to Peter and he says, how about you? Or he says to the disciples, how about you guys? What do you think? And Peter's confession of faith, he says, you are God's Messiah. You're the Christ of God. You're the Savior, the one who saves And it's as if Jesus then in turn turn, says, let me explain to you what being the Messiah is going to look like. First for me, but also for you all. And we're going to see in verses 21 and 22, and you can see this in your outline as well, that rejected, died or slain and raised was Jesus' clear path to pay for our sin and provide for our salvation. Verse 22, Jesus strictly warned them not to tell this to anyone. So why would he do this? Why would he say, don't tell anybody this? Keep this between us. Because many in Israel had their own plans of what the promised Messiah would be. They were being dominated by Rome, and they were hoping that a Messiah would come and start a revolution. There's revolutions going on today, isn't there? They were hoping for a revolution, an overthrow, a king who would set up his earthly kingdom, and crowds and masses who had that view would get in the way of what the Messiah had planned to do. So Jesus explains what being the Messiah means in reality. Verse 22, and he said, the Son of Man must suffer. So he actually refers to himself as the Son of Man. And this is a term that's used 88 times in the New Testament. And it refers to the book of Daniel, a prophecy about the God-man coming to earth. So when Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man, he is claiming here to be the Messiah. And he uses this word must. It's an actual imperative In other words, if you want your driveway cleared of snow, you must shovel it. It's an imperative. It doesn't happen unless. And he says, the Son of Man must suffer many things 
and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law. So the Son of Man, Jesus, had to, was disapproved of by the religious leaders of that day. And I think that we tend to kind of gloss over what Jesus was really like. But I want you to think about the perfect Son of God coming and putting on human flesh. And think about as a child, how many of you guys as a child felt like you just didn't belong? There were times I had those thoughts, right? Imagine being perfect but growing up. Can you imagine that he did not feel like he belonged? Now imagine being raised by imperfect parents. Now imagine having a mom and siblings who you have a public ministry who have different ideas of what your life is supposed to look like. And they show up demanding some extra attention over here because you're neglecting the family. Right? Definitely the life of Jesus could be described as suffering or misunderstood for sure. The events that led up to the crucifixion are described as suffering. Isaiah 53, the prophecy about the Messiah is the suffering servant. And 1 Peter 3, 18 says, Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. Jesus goes on to say he must suffer, be rejected, and he must be killed. Now Luke and Mark say that as Jesus was on the cross, he took his last breath. Matthew and John said that when he was on the cross, he gave up the spirit. He gave up his spirit. The text goes on to say that in John, the executioners when they came around to speed up the death of Jesus, they were going to break the legs of all, all the, guy, the guys on the cross. And the executioner saw that he was dead and passed by. And another soldier said, for good measure, and he took a spear and stabbed him in the side. And all four of the Gospels actually record that Joseph of Arimathea no longer was it took Jesus, but took the body of Jesus and put him in the grave. So the scripture is very clear that Christ actually did die. He didn't look dead, he was dead. And 1 Corinthians 15.3 tells us why Christ died. For what I received, I pass on to you of first importance, that Christ died for our sins. So it was our sins that were the reason for Christ's death. Then he says he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Let me read you a couple more passages of Scripture. 1 Corinthians 15, he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and the Twelve, and then he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters. Romans 4.25 says, He was delivered over to death for our sins, and he was raised to life for our justification. And in Romans 5.1 and 2, Therefore, since we've been justified through faith, faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith in this grace in which we now stand. So this whole Jesus being rejected, slain, and raised was obviously not good for Jesus. That would be the definition of a bad week, wouldn't it? But think about what came as a result 
of that horrible experience for the Son of God. My salvation and yours. How many of you at multiple times of your life said, thank you, Lord. You look in the mirror and you realize you don't deserve it, and yet that horrible week that he endured and the 33 years of suffering he went through, and you say, thank you, Lord. Jesus' death is unique, and it's the only way to be saved from our sin. And Peter, in Acts 4, says salvation is found in no one else. There's no other name given under heaven by which we must be saved. And Paul said in Romans 10, you probably know this, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be, you'll be saved. And he ends it with all, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. That through rejected, slain, and raised, Jesus provided for our justification. It's a big word. It means to be declared right or innocent before God, the holy judge. When you know that you're guilty, but you're declared innocent. And I think Open Door is pretty faithful. I think Pastor Sid's incredibly faithful at drawing three circles. We know that we can be safe from our sin based upon faith in Christ alone. We're really good about communicating the clear, simple gospel. But I got thinking about this. Since Open Door is really clear on presenting the uh, rejected, slain, and resurrected Christ, shouldn't we have a bunch of really encouraged Christians running around here? Shouldn't we actually have everybody who's not doing this, but like this all the time? We have our name written down in glory. We know who holds the future that he's been covering the last few months. But why are so many of us struggling? If our name's written in the book of life, I want to encourage you guys to stop and ask real questions and make some real honest assessments. I think many in our church family are struggling because we have our name written down in glory, but we're not living out our God honoring, God glorifying purpose. We're pretty faithful about getting the gospel out, right? But we're not so good about holding each other's hand and what Jesus says in this next command that he calls us to deny ourselves and take up our cross and follow him. Now, are you familiar that Christians were not called Christians until Acts chapter 11? In Antioch, they were called Christians for the very first time. And before this, they were called followers of the way. They were called followers of the way. And they didn't receive these titles or these names based upon what they thought. They received these titles based upon how they behaved in relationship to what they thought. You follow me? So when Jesus taught in John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life, they earned the title of followers of the way by acting like and actually following in the footsteps of the way. Make sense? So in verses 21 and 22, the way of Jesus is suffering, rejection, suffering, rejection, slain, 
and raised. And so if we claim to be followers of the way, are we to embrace rejection, slain, and raised? The answer is, yeah. Sorry, guys, this doesn't sell books. But what we like to do is we like to insert cheap substitutes. We like to read those self-help books, those positive thinking books, the Joel Olstein books of your best life now. You see, rejected, slain, and raised is not only how the Messiah paid for our salvation. It is the road laid out for everyone who has called upon the name of the Lord. And it's actually the only way that we honor God in this little window of time we call life on this earth. So we're going to see, and you can see it in the text, verse 23, that denying ourselves, taking up our cross and following Jesus is our clear path to live for Jesus moment by moment. Let's read it. Then he said to them all, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up the cross daily, and follow me. So in the same way, the Son of Man must, some of your translations say, whoever wants to be my disciple must or let him. It's just this idea that in order to want this, you got to do this. It's the as a result of, it must happen. So in order to follow me, this is what needs to happen. And he says, deny themselves. It sounds an awful lot like suffer rejection. Take up the cross sounds an awful lot like die. And follow me is a new way or being raised to life. And it is the only way for the Christian life. It's the prescription and it's the only way that true fruit comes. And I want to warn you that most, again, I've said this before, but most of our Christian books sold from uh, Christian book distributors or Christian bookstores, most of these things, friends, are just self-help books that guide you away from Jesus' teaching here of denying yourself, taking up your cross, and following him. In fact, most of my prayer, and maybe perhaps yours, is dedicated, Lord, please remove this pain from me. And in Romans 5, verses 3 to 5, after faith in Christ, it says, we glory in our sufferings. What? Because we know that suffering produces perseverance. And perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So he calls us to deny ourselves. And the phrase, deny yourself, is to disown, to disregard, to pay no attention to, to avoid, to stand firm against, to resist, to strive against. So in order to deny yourself, you have to actually have to resist yourself. Now, what am I really talking about? I'm talking about denying your sin nature. That thing that resides in you, 
that when you came to faith in Jesus, you've been at battle, and you're always wondering, why do I do what I don't want to do? Just for the sake of picture's sake, I'd like to give you a little picture. Um, this is from the Victorious Christian Living. It's from uh, that Nathan and I, my mom, grew up teaching this with women's discipleship in our home church. But in short, First uh, Thessalonians 5 describes us. The Apostle Paul describes us as a three-part being. That we are a spirit, we have a soul, and we live in a body. And the fastest way to describe this is this, is as you look at your body over here, that's where you're aware of the world around you. And you take in all these messages through your five senses. Now, we know that our body is surrounded by the world. We're swimming in the world. Like a fish in the ocean, we're swimming in the world. And we know that Satan is actively influencing the world. Now, as we take in messages from the world through our five senses, we then process in our soul, our mind-willing emotions, and as a result, these actions come out, and these beliefs come out the back end. The Bible describes us as being spiritually dead when we were born. And that when we came to believe that Jesus Christ died and rose again, we become spiritually alive. Ephesians 1.13 says he places his, but when we believe, he places spirit inside of us. And so as a Christian, I become spiritually alive and God's spirit comes to live and move in my body. We actually believe that and teach that. So as a result, if you are a born-again Christian, at times you are a walking civil war. The battle every day is to deny self, the flesh, and to yield to the spirit. Anybody relate to that one? You with me on that one? Okay. This is the battle. I wake up and get out of bed because I'm tempted to just camp on this side and leave out that side. And it's incredibly difficult. It can be painful. It can even be unpleasant. But the payoff, the result, the fruit is love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. So Jesus says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves. He also says, take up their, his cross. But what word follows, take up their cross? Look at the text. What's it follow? What's that word after it? Daily. That we are declared righteous in God's sight by faith in Jesus Christ. That's once for all. But daily, moment by moment, putting on this mindset of taking up the cross. And the cross meant death for Jesus, but opened the door for payment for our sin and peace with God. But when you came to faith in Jesus, the Bible teaches you died with him by faith. And this identity is what allows each of us to die to sin and the world and our sin nature and allows us to live our new life in Christ. You may be familiar with these. But Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live, I live I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and he gave himself for me. 
He said in 6.14 of Galatians, I may, may I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through, who, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. So by faith, friends, if your faith is in Christ, by faith you died to who you used to be and you live Christ's life in you. And we are to live out this death on a moment-by-moment, day-by-day basis. So denying ourselves, taking up our cross, and follow me. Now just take a moment. Just wait a minute here. Jesus says, follow me. What did he just say in the text he was going to do? He, He just got done saying, I'm going to suffer and be rejected. I'm going to be murdered, and I'm going to come back to life. And he says, follow me. I want you to think about that. We kind of divorce these two things and kind of come up with our own version of deny, take up our cross, and follow me. But this sounds incredibly hard when Jesus says, follow me, because it is. The gospel, my friends, is free to you, but it was incredibly hard for Christ. And the call for everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord for salvation is to follow. Just imagine Jesus in the garden before he went to the cross. And he asked the Father, please take this cup from me, but not my will, yours be done. So even at the point of the crucifixion, Jesus followed submission in prayer. It's godly to say, Lord, I pray for this person to win the election. But it's even more godly to say, Lord, not my will, yours be done. It's godly to pray for jobs. It's godly to pray for outcomes. But it's just as much as if not more godly to say, but not my will, yours be done. It's godly to pray for healing. It's godly to pray for restoration. It's godly to pray for anything. But to follow Christ is in palms up, but not my will. Yours be done. In the same way, Mark 10 says, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Serving is following Christ. I don't know what happened when the pandemic hit. The first six weeks, eight weeks, the phone was ringing off the hook. Everybody wanting to help everybody. And about three or four months ago, everything dropped off. Everybody turned to self. Like the, the serving is like, I had, we have more people trying to help than we could handle. And I don't know what happened. Following Christ is serving. And last one, following Christ is not judging. John 12, 47, anyone who hears my words... But does not keep them, Jesus said, I do not judge that person, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. So if denying yourself, taking up your cross, and following Jesus sounds hard, Apostle Paul in Ephesians 6 calls it a battle. It's hard. Rejected, slain, raised, provided our salvation. But the result of denying ourselves and taking up our cross and following Jesus, friends, God's glory, the fruit of the Spirit, 
and the salvation of our world around us happens. That's how God does his greatest work. It's actually how the world knows that we're believers. How do you think they're supposed to know that we're believers in Jesus? By them watching how our actions are informed by our beliefs. That's how they're supposed to know that we're Christians. So how do you deny yourself or your sin nature at each moment? Because we're swimming in culture. Um, Virtually, if you watch any TV, virtually every commercial says, you deserve this. That's code word for don't deny yourself, don't take up your cross, and don't follow me. You should actively and publicly in the presence of your home and people renounce that. When you hear the phrase, you deserve this. No, I don't. You don't deserve the car. If a politician says, you deserve this. No, you don't. You hear me? I want to encourage you. There's a whole act of force trying to get us to actually not deny ourselves. Tim Keller, in his book, The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness, he points out the modern-day heresy or false idea that man and his desires are basically good. Modern psychology is humanism, has adopted this idea that basically man is good and that people commit crimes and they do these things because they have a low, too low of a self-esteem. They should be pumped up and encouraged. He points out that it's actually an anti-biblical concept and he brings out out of 1 Corinthians 3 and 4, he says, true Christian humility is not actually thinking um, less of yourself. It's thinking about yourself less. That the more we understand who Christ is and what he's done for us and live in our death and resurrection to him, we just stop relating all circumstances to ourselves. We stop going to church and, start, and stop thinking, Do I, did I feel loved? Did they like me? How did everybody relate to me? Paul, in Romans 6, had a clear vision for how to ter- deny or d- die to our flesh. He says in Romans 6, 11, Count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. The word count actually is reckon, take an inventory, regard, hang on to, hold, claim. So in other words, every morning, hold on to and claim, I died with Jesus and I'm alive in him today. It's really that simple, friends. This is the renewing of our mind that we're called to do. I died with Jesus, and I'm renewing my mind in him today. I want to read you a passage, and I want to read you uh, some quotes from an author I really are encouraged by. This is out of, we'll come back to that, Romans 6, 1 through 7. It says, what shall we say then? Should we go on sinning so that grace may increase? No way, by no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us were baptized into Christ Jesus, were baptized into his death? Talking about spiritual baptism, that when people believe that Christ died and rose again for their sins, they are spiritually baptized. The Spirit comes to live in their life. We are therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead, through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. 
For if you've been united with him in his death, like his, we will certainly be unite, also be united with him in his resurrection, like his. For we know that our old self was crucified with him, so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Isn't that cool? It gets even better. Now if we die with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, count yourself. Hang on, hold on, consider, right? Yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer any parts of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness. Rather, offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. And offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. For sin shall no longer be your master because you are not under the law but under grace. So I've been working through this book called True Spirituality by Francis Schaeffer. And he actually kind of makes some points about this uh, Romans chapter 6 passage. And we are tempted to have these spiritual thoughts and then just kind of just live our life. And I love how he says this. He says this, first, out of Romans 6, Christ died in history in real time. You all agree with that? All right. Christ, number two, Christ rose in history in real time. All right. Here's where the faith comes in. We died with Christ in real history when we accepted him as Savior by faith. Right? Number four, we will be raised in history when he comes again. It's what Sid's been spending so much time helping us understand this resurrection and the future. And number five, we are to live by faith now as though we were now dead, already died. Number six, we're to live now by faith as though we have now already been raised from the dead to new life with him in heaven. This is the normal Christian life. We are to consider ourselves having died with Christ and we are alive with him. And we can say he died and rose again in real time and real history, but we actually died with him and we will be raised with him in real time and real history. Francis Schaeffer goes on to say this, check this out. Jesus Christ, he lives, in de- lives indeed in the presence of the Father. This is where we're called to live. We're called to be dead in this present life, dead to both good and bad, in order to be alive in the presence of God. Yes, even good. We're to be dead, not unconscious, not locked away in some darkness, but alive to God in communion with him, in communication with him. Our call to faith in this present life is that we should live each moment as though dead to all things, that we might be alive to God. And this is what it means now, as I wrote earlier, he says, to love God enough to be contented, 
to love him enough in the present world to say thank you and all the ebb and flow of life. When I'm dead to both good and bad, I have my face turned towards God. When I'm uh, turned towards God, and this is the place in which by faith at the present moment of history, I am to be. When I am there, what am I? I'm then the creature in the presence of the creator. Acknowledging that he's my creator and I am only a creature, nothing more. It's as though I'm already in the grave and already before the face of God. Now I'm ready for war. Now there can be spirituality of a biblical sort. And now there can be a Christian life rejected, slain, and raised. And now we're ready to be used. Now, the only way that God uses us if we're willing to follow Christ and denying ourselves taking up our cross and following him. And if this path sounds very unpleasant to you, you need to be warned. The alternative is a dead end. And we're going to read it, but we're back on verses 24 and 25. The path of self-preservation, focusing on self, which is our default mode, is ultimately a road to loss and failure to live for Jesus moment by moment. Let's read it. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. Whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for you to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit your very self? You lose what you're trying to preserve. So in closing, we covered this word justification. It's once for all, in a single moment, my guilt is declared gone forever based upon the finished work of Christ on the cross. But this whole Christian life, this Christian joy, my readiness for spiritual battle, my practical Christian freedom, friends, this is a moment by moment considering myself dead to sin and alive to Christ. So in, in review, you're going, well, how do I do this? We reject our sinful nature by remembering we died with Christ. We are risen with him. And we have to do that on a daily, moment-by-moment basis. Think about how amazing this is that I am crucified with Christ. I'm not even alive. It's Christ who lives in me. And we consider ourselves having gone, died, gone to heaven, and he sent us back. So really, each day is stepping back from heaven into the world as though we died and were raised to life. And you can see it at the bottom of your outline. Francis Schaeffer summed it up this way. In our thoughts and our lives now, we're to live as though we'd already died, bend to heaven, and come back as risen. This makes all the difference, friends. Makes all the difference until he comes. I'd like to invite you guys to just bow your heads and close your eyes. I want you to imagine today that you physically died. You went to heaven and you're face to face with Christ. He then sends you back for a short season called 
each day. To live out your purpose of bringing glory to him. How would that change your actions and choices on Tuesday and Wednesday this week? You start to see what clearly really matters. You start denying those sinful desires. You start considering yourself dead to sin. That's the old Seth. And you start enjoying this new life, this new communion with God. Sure would give you purpose, wouldn't it? Sure would free you from all the yo-yo, roller coaster circumstances of the sin-filled world. Friends, the death and resurrection of Jesus was hard for him, free to us, and we thank him for that. But to be free from the roller coaster yo-yo of all this life, it takes it every morning getting up, declaring that I died with Christ and that I am alive in him. And that is what causes us to live for his glory. So I invite you on this journey. I'm learning this day by day. Let's support each other. Let's lock arms with each other, building each other up, not feeding that flesh, not in, uh, using our flesh against each other. But this week, let's fix our eyes as if we've gone to heaven and been back and we have a window to bring glory to him. Let's pray. Our Father, thank you so much for the joy of our great salvation that you provided through Jesus Christ. And we're thankful for that. Um, I admit, Lord, where we get off this track that we quickly make this great salvation about us and our comforts. Lord, we realize this is all for your glory. World governments, elections, our Christian life, our salvation is all for your glory. And so I pray that you would strengthen this body this week to die to sin, be alive in Christ, that the world would know that we're followers of the way and that they would know there is a God and that we will stand before him and that Jesus Christ is the only way. We love you, and we praise you for that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.